from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is uh, Thursday, the 8th of October, 2020, and we're glad to have you with us. We're going to be speaking in the first half hour this morning with Steve Pappas. He's the uh, editor of the Times Argus and Rutland Herald. Uh, in the second half hour, Chris Stefanik joins us. Uh, she is a UVM assistant professor and leader of the Lake Champlain Sea Grant Program. Uh, she's going to be talking about efforts to improve the environment and economy of the Champlain Basin. Later on in the second hour, uh, after uh, we're hoping to line up one of our uh, CBS friends to uh, weigh in at just after the top of the hour. But then um, Lori Smith joins us. She's with the Vermont Futures Project, and uh, she's going to bring along uh, three people who were talking about their uh, recent uh, moves to Vermont and uh, partly uh, anyway motivated by the uh, coronavirus pandemic and its effects on other parts of the country. So uh, it should be an interesting program. As always, we welcome calls from listeners. Two four four one seven 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 is the uh, local number in Waterbury. The toll free number is one eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. And uh, you can uh, give us a ring uh, here at the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Let us know what you think about whatever's going on out there. Let's bring in uh, Steve Pappas, our good friend of the show. Um, he uh, joins us uh, by phone, I believe, from his office there in down, beautiful downtown Barrie. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Dave. Some big news out there. We have uh, a couple of... Uh, bills uh, allowed to pass into law, one at least with a, I'm not sure whether it was one or both, uh, with the, uh, without the governor's signature. That one I have in mind, of course, is a uh, long standing goal of uh, marijuana reform advocates in the state, and that was to uh, get Vermont to start offering marijuana for sale in retail outlets. It looks like we are going to join the ranks of, I think it's 10 other states now, including our neighbor Massachusetts. Uh, in uh, allowing retail outlets to open, and um, that uh, was that a surprise to you that the governor uh, uh, declined uh, to veto that, even though he had some misgivings. It's an election year, Dave. Nothing surprises me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, for for listeners, um, just to be clear, um, the governor has three options on any bill. He can sign it. He can not sign it, or uh, not sign it and allow it go into law, um, or he can veto it. Um, and uh, in this particular case, um, it, it, this is an issue that has been. Um, brought up multiple times in recent sessions and um, is something that, that the administration and lawmakers have been hashing out um, at, at various um, levels. Uh, it was in committee, for, boy, it felt like it was in committee for years um, <laughs> and uh, was brought up and, and, and tabled and then uh, keeps coming back and uh, controversial, um, you know, in, in part because it, it sets up the mechanism for how marijuana marijuana retail sales will be taxed. Um, so the governor has said all along that um, you know he, he supports the, the the study of this issue and the pursuit of it, um, kind of on the heels of uh, reluctantly um, not. I believe he didn't sign into law the the last marijuana bill. Two, isn't that correct, Dave? I can't remember exactly, but um, 
That, esca- yeah, that one escapes yeah. me too right now. Uh, yeah, I, think, but, I think that's true, and if anyone remembers, I, I, I don't have all that information right in front of me. But anyway, this is, this is one of those things that um, he, he has had the option to do it, and it, it sends a strong signal um, that while he is going to let it go into law, he doesn't necessarily support the idea, and um, he's kind of stood on that. I remember now the original. The original one was he said that he sent it back. The original marijuana bill, he sent it back, asked for revisions. It came back in the next session, and then it was approved um, without his signature. And uh, so it's the same kind of thing where he's supporting it, but he's not supporting it, and it's sending a mul- uh, two messages to. Uh, Vermonters slash voters right now, which is um, that, you know, understand the need for economic growth, understand that uh, this this has the potential of being um, a moneymaker. Um, and that was one of the concerns all along was whether or not we were actually going to be able to make money off retail marijuana sales um, enough to make it worthwhile. And we were studying other states like Colorado and, as you said, Massachusetts, um, and uh, it, it got to a point where they they, they convinced um, everyone became convinced that this was the right way to go. But it doesn't really align with the governor's politics. And um, he's, you know, I, I I would if I were a, a betting man, which I'm not, I would say that he's probably trying to make both sides as happy as possible in this particular situation um, because he doesn't want to alienate an entire block of um, voters right now. So this is a a push toward economic growth of one kind, which is something that Vermont badly needs. Um, And it's a, um, you know, a signal to the folks who do not feel like we should be legislating marijuana in any way, shape, or form in this state, that he still does not necessarily believe this is um, the right direction to go entirely, so he just didn't put his name on it. He's letting it go to law without it. That's still letting it go to law, by the way. Um, So even though he didn't sign it, um, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, some people are just going to say, well, see, he does support it. He just doesn't want to own up to it. Yeah, I I think that the governor must sense that there is at least a large plurality of Vermonters, if not a majority, who favor this idea, and even if he has personal misgivings about it or is just unenthusiastic about any thought that he, the state might be encouraging marijuana consumption, uh, he, he is uh, essentially take, trying to take this middle road here. Interesting that he, he must have been in a... Uh, in a somewhat conflicted mood the uh, last couple of days because he issued another statement yesterday about a separate piece of legislation and uh, that this governs the use of force policy for police officers in Vermont. The governor uh, allowed S-119 to uh, pass into law without his signature as well. And uh, obviously police use of force has been much discussed uh, both nationally in recent times, uh, and this takes on a, a definite uh, hue of uh, 
racial concern and social justice concern. Uh, this has been an issue in Burlington as well, where there have been demonstrations calling for the ouster of three police officers. So it's uh, not only a big issue nationally, but one here within Vermont also. Um, I'm wondering if you uh, have a sense of what the governor's thinking was on this, Steve. I, I don't actually, Dave. I, it, it was a little, and when I saw the statement come over yesterday, I was a little, a little confused. I did reach out to a couple of lawmakers to ask if they could offer a little bit of clarification about, you know, why, why this particular approach, uh, what they thought of it. Um, and then the ACLU Vermont came out with a pretty strong statement. I don't know if you saw that. That was. Yes, it did. Um, yep. Yeah, um, basically saying, "Come on now, you know this is this is not this is not what we need at this time." Um, this is wait S one nineteen. I'm looking at their statement right in front of me, and it says here uh, ACLU Vermont statement on enactment of S one nineteen, which gives Vermont the best law enforcement use of force policy. In the country, the ACLU of Vermont celebrates the enactment of S-119, an act relating to statewide standard and policy for law enforcement use of force. Uh, Governor Scott allowed the bill to become law on Wednesday, establishing the nation's first statewide policy on police use of force. And that has been a longstanding goal of the ACLU is to sort of standardize uh, how police react in different situations. And I don't know whether that's really an achievable goal on the ground and on the, and on the street, but uh, certainly that is the goal now. It's in codified in Vermont law, and that is something that the ACLU, uh, as I say, has been pushing for uh, since uh, the days when uh, Alan Gilbert was executive director. He retired a few years ago. So uh, it, it seems like they're, they're un, un, uh, unequivocally uh, be, behind this change. And yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I totally misspoke on that. That's okay. Um, you're absolutely <laughs> We're allowed right. occasionally. <laughs> uh, but, but, but the point being that, that the governor's signature would have sent an even stronger message. Um, oh, sure. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess that was my point was that it was, it was not as, it, it, there are times when, um, the political climate is such that you need a, you need, um, if we're going to make a decision as big as this one, and you're and you're ninety percent there, go the extra ten percent, and and take the lumps on it if if that's what you're afraid of. But don't, you know, I don't think we should continue to be um, always skirting issues. And you know, there have been a handful of letter writers to the paper, you know, lately who are just saying, you know, he's he's become the veto governor. He's become the governor who just, you know. Kind of pushing pushing things around on his desk instead of actually taking action um, at, at at a political level. I don't think that this governor has been ineffective at all, and I think he's been quite frankly quite busy <laughs> for the last few months. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, he is. This is the season of signing bills into law, and um, and there is no question in my mind that these are not timed. Um, you know, they're, they're being timed specifically yeah. to win <clears throat> signing certain things because the message gets spun and discussed on the Dave Graham show and then other places um, so that uh, people are thinking about 
you know, how they want to attack it. And, um, you know, there are other things that will come up on busy days. I, You know, you and I have talked about this before, about how there are oftentimes uh, the, the more controversial things that an administration will do. They'll they'll send out the press release at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. um, and then it gets lost in, in the whole weekend news cycle, and, and then by the time Monday morning picks up again, you know, we're off and running to other things, and it, it kind of gets minimized. Who knows, you know, what comes out over the next few weeks in, um, in that regard. Um, but that's why October is always a surprise, right? Because you never, you, didn't, you really do never know what you're going to get. One thing that's kind of interesting here is the timing because normally the legislature is wrapping up in typically May, occasionally June. Uh, the governor is making these decisions whether to sign or veto legislation, whether to allow it to become law without his signature. And then there's this sort of, uh, a little bit of time for the, those actions to kind of sink in as news and for them to be uh, folded into people's other impressions of whoever is the sitting governor before the election rolls around. And here we have a strange case where, because of the COVID-19 crisis, the, the legislature had this weird bifurcated or trifurcated uh, session, ends up meeting into uh, the end of September, and now the governor is, is in the hot seat here in October, which is weeks to go before the election. So maybe that is some of a... The, the motivation for, for the reticence here, but I kind of wish that the governor would actually go ahead and take a position on this stuff. I mean, if, if, if marijuana retail sales is, uh, is a good enough policy for the state, he ought to just say so and then defend that position. <laughs> As opposed to saying, well, you know, I'm going to let this thing become law, but I'm not really that enthusiastic. I, 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 I sort of feel like it is a yes or no question. And I feel, I feel like it would be really kind of refreshing to have a, a definite yes or a definite no and, and then defense for that position. And then voters can decide, is that the policy we want for the state? Uh, just just to sort of make, keep things clear and simple, but maybe well, again, uh, again, I would just I, I would just add that that's all true and well and good, but in an election year, you do not want to alienate a block of your base or yeah. or, or otherwise. I mean, sure, this every the closer you get to November third, every decision is political. Every every you know they're they're parsing every single word. Yep. And Steve, I'm guessing you watched the vice presidential debate last night. I had it on. I was I was I was working. It was on and it was it was on as background noise. But yes, it was on. <laughs> okay, you were working. Uh, what putting out this morning's paper? Yeah, there there needed there, there's you know there needs to be some work done on the production cycle so that things can actually get out the door. So yes, I was I yep. was pulling double duty. Wow, that, your your twenty hour a week job editing two newspapers and and acting as publisher and yikes. Anyway, uh, well twenty hour a week, uh, a twenty hour a day. I meant. Is that what I said? I said yeah. 20 hours a week. No, 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 no. No, that is. I bet you wish sometimes, but yeah, not the absolutely. case. Okay. No, it was, it was definitely on. It was very, um, I'm assuming you're asking, you're asking me because you want my response to it. Um, 
the uh, it was nice to hear issues. Actually, you know, it was mm-hmm. nice to hear um, them actually having a conversation, albeit um, a little awkward at times, um, a little out of control. Not out of control in a different kind of way than the, the presidential debate, but um, you know, they they crammed a lot of a lot of rhetoric um, into that 90 minutes. And um, I, I think that they that debate certainly served Americans better than the last. Um, and I don't think that really anybody's minds changed. I didn't hear anything last night that um, I hadn't heard before or read um, many times up to this point. So I, there was nothing. I, I didn't feel like... Um, as a kind of a someone who follows the news on a regular basis that it it probably had a, a huge impact um i know that there's a lot of talk this morning about both sides getting kind of a bump out of it um which i think always happens um but uh you know i i was just kind of as awkward as debates are and it's kind of like watching a trains going at each other or something and mm, every time yeah. it happens um, you kind of cringe and say oh boy this is going to get bad And um, but it was just refreshing to hear people having a, a heated conversation um, and they didn't you know they certainly weren't budging and they certainly um, it sounds like just from the uh, what I've understood this morning the, the fact checkers are saying both kind of both sides bent the truth on a few things and um, spoke on a few things but overall I think uh, I think probably uh, folks uh, are feeling a little uh, a little more normal about the situation maybe yeah. I don't know a couple of degrees anyway two things disappointed me about the debate one was I thought that the moderator Susan Page could have been much stronger and done a better job uh as pence was was going over time at the ends of his answers over and over again and you know you give the guy 5 seconds extra to just finish the sentence but he keeps talking and and she should be talking over him so that he can't even get his message across at that point she should be saying you're done mr vice president you're done mr vice president you're done mr vice president over and over again until he finally succumbs because uh we just can't have that kind of bullying going on in these debates i mean it was a little more gentle obviously than i mean anything would be more gentle than what president trump did last week but i i really think that he also uh the vice president pence this is was uh out of line uh, many times and uh you know i don't know whether these are regular fouls or flagrant fouls or exactly what they are but he fouled out of the game if you ask me and uh you know the, the and she let him get away with it basically um and and kind of got run over uh, kamala harris handled it about as well as she could with her sort of ironic smile and all that stuff but i I, I thought that, that he was, he was out of line in, in a different way from the, but I mean, maybe this is just the style of this administration. It's a bullying style. And, and that's, uh, that certainly was on display again last night, even if not to the extreme of the, what happened last week. Am I crazy about that or what do you think, Steve? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think everybody observed that. I mean, uh, the, 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 
Twitter, the Twitter sphere last night as the debate was going, and even the analysis on some of the live analysis chats that were going on were saying that you know moving forward maybe there ought to be a, something that cuts the mic out at a certain point, yeah. you know, ten seconds after you know the the time is up, and that's just the way it goes. And um, certainly the president this morning, um, upon hearing news that they wanted to do a virtual debate. Um, where they're, you know, he basically said, I, I, I'm not going to do that. Um, it's not about public safety. To me, it's about I want to be able to debate. I want to be able to, um, you know, have my say. Yeah. And um, and I, I think he he even alluded to that he doesn't want he doesn't want to be cut off. Yeah, he didn't just allude to it. He came right out and said it. They can cut yeah. you off at any time or something like that. And, um, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and that's a, that, and that's a big problem for him. What do you think? I mean, okay. Well, I wanted to get before, with just a couple of minutes left, and I did want to mention my other point of disappointment. And then actually, this one actually goes against, uh, Kamala Harris. And that is that she really ducked the question about do the Democrats have a plan to pack the Supreme Court if, uh, the Republicans are successful in placing Amy Coney Barrett on it? And uh, I don't know. Did did you think? Did you agree with me that that was a that was a disappointing performance by her on that question? There were a couple of questions during the debate. There was one midway through about um, basically they both had to do with are there plans in place for um, one was about succession and one was about Supreme Court and um, in both of those cases. The, the question the, we got no answers. We got no yeah, that, and uh, the succession and question they, definitely. They uh, yep. Yeah, we got a lot of a lot of history about where um, Kamala Harris came from, and a lot of you know, uh, th- we certainly heard a lot about the ins and outs of what happened in the day, first days of the epidemic. But we actually didn't get a lot of answers uh, to some of the direct direct questions, and the moderator did not hold them accountable to that, which you know just let the, let it go, which was disappointing. I think the proper response for Harris and Biden on the question of court packing is that's outrageous behavior, and we would only engage in it if the Republicans engaged in their outrageous behavior of reversing themselves from 2016 and putting somebody on the Supreme Court weeks before the election. That's the only reason we would do this, is that if they go nuclear in the sense of uh, flipping McConnell's statements of 2016 about Merrick Garland on their head, if they did that, that would be such outrageous behavior that we would have to use whatever tools we have to respond at that level. And at that point, court packing is an option. I don't, does that, I mean, should they go there, or, or would that be too crazy? I I don't know, Dave. I that's that, that's a hypothetical that had never really even crossed my mind. Um, I, I, it, it's hard to say, and it's hard to know um, if the Democrats would. I'm not sure the Democrats would do that. Take that position. It seems that 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 feels. Um, I mean, these are extreme times for sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I, I I just don't. I think they're all Democrats tend to show themselves as being a little more tempered on these things than the Republicans do and I think that's why the Republicans are you know in the positions of power that they are right now. So I don't yeah. know, maybe maybe that is what needs to happen, but the the level of extremism that comes out of that kind of an approach um 
I, I don't know. I don't know how much more we can all stomach. Yeah, I, and I'm not even sure they should go there at at the end of the day. But I think they should say it, it would be an outrage concomitant with what the Republicans are doing for us to do that. And we're not going to say right now that we're not going to do that because, uh, you know, you, we don't tip our hand ahead of time and this is all political strategy and, and you know, you're just going to have to live with that as a possibility. Uh, I, I, I don't I, I I think it was a duck though, and 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 was unfortunate. Hey, I hate to say this, but that's about all the time we have. Steve Pappas, uh, th- thanks very much for joining. It's always good uh, talking with you. You too. I'm always glad there's no flies on us. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, uh, let's go to a bottom of the hour break here on the Dave Graham Show. Here's some CBS news. We'll be back in a couple. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back, and this is uh, our weekly Seeds to Society segment we put on in collaboration with the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at the University of Vermont, which also encompasses uh, UVM Extension. And we talk to folks there a lot about what goes on with the environment, with our food supplies of various types and descriptions uh, in agriculture, etc. And uh, this week we're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to be talking about the environment and economy of the Lake Champlain Basin. We have uh, someone who is director of the... Uh, Lake Champlain Sea Grant Program, which is uh, devoted to trying to enhance and improve the environment and economy of the Lake Champlain Basin. And uh, Chris uh, Stepanuk, who's an assistant professor of, at the University of Vermont, uh, wears that hat as well as the uh, Lake Champlain Sea Grant hat. And uh, really glad to have Chris with us on the program this morning. Good morning, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Dave. And tell us a little bit about what is the Lake Champlain Sea Grant Program, and uh, tell us uh, how it uh, works. And then I want to I want to also zero in at some point during this segment about the with the project going on in Montpelier. That sounds really fascinating. Oh yeah, sure. So b- big picture, the Lake Champlain Sea Grant is a funded program through the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in partnership with the University of Vermont and SUNY Plattsburgh. And the work that we do is within the Lake Champlain watershed. So that spans from uh, Cabot, Vermont, down to, to the Rutland area, over to Saranac Lake, and up to the Canadian border, and actually beyond that we work within the U.S. And the work that we do is it's partnered with non-federal groups. So we work with watershed groups. We work with the state, uh, both state of New York and Vermont, to do work that revolves around the healthy, and I'll say coastal, meaning Lake Champlain ecosystems and the ecosystems of the streams and rivers draining to Lake Champlain. And we do work that relates to uh, resilient communities and economies. So the, the kinds of things we do are community outreach, uh, public education programs around 
uh, this summer you and I had spoken earlier about lawn care. Uh, we do work with professional development for real estate professionals. We have a very strong kindergarten to 12th grade education program and teacher education program where we have students getting out on Lake Champlain and in their local streams to, to learn how to monitor water quality. Uh, we support local watershed groups and natural resource conservation districts to use property site assessments and educate homeowners about best practices for their land and how to protect water quality by the native plants that they put on the shore or having other kinds of practices on board uh, in the shoreline area to protect you from erosion happening. It's uh, it, it, mentioned. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say it, it, the the geographically widespread nature of this uh, I, I find kind of fascinating. You you could live in Cabot and rarely get over to Lake Champlain, and, and you could still want to be thinking yeah. about the impacts you have on the lake because you are way up at the northeast end of the Winooski Basin, and something you're doing, lawn care, for instance, in your yard, might be having an impact on that lake uh, 60 or 70 miles distant. Yeah, that's one of the things that it's a, it's a challenge for people to grasp, but really it relates to what you do on your property affects the water quality in that local stream or river uh, near your house, and then that has a connection to Lake Champlain. And you're exactly right. What happens up in Cabot could have an impact down in Lake Champlain many miles away. Uh, the You mentioned something that's happening in Montpelier. We just finished a, a walking tour of Montpelier, which takes about an hour, and it takes folks to about nine to ten different sites, depending on what you choose your own adventure. And each of the sites is what are called green infrastructure sites. So things like rain gardens or pervious pavement or um, like a green roof. There's not one on that particular tour. But uh, things that are done on the land to help water infiltrate when it hits the, the ground in a city, we create nature and give that water someplace to go. So rather than running off immediately into the Winooski River, which drains into Lake Champlain, we people have and the businesses have installed certain practices to help minimize and slow down how much stormwater is getting into the river immediately, uh, which helps benefit the water quality in the river and downstream in Lake Champlain. And if you want, if you if you're in Montpelier or you live in the area or whatever, and you're curious about this, are there guided tours or is there a booklet you can sort of follow, or how would one actually go on this tour? Yeah, so the we have some of these sites that are featured on this tour are actually putting out and giving away maps. So two of those are Hunger Mountain Co-op and the VSECU branch in Montpelier right on the bike path walking trail. Mm-hmm. And people can also go to the Lake Champlain Sea Grant website, uh, which is uh, uvm.edu slash S-E-A-G-R-A-N-T, and the maps are available to be downloaded from there. But you can get the printed copies, which are pretty sweet, uh, from at least Hunger Mountain Co-op and VSECU, as well as all of our partner organizations, um, which are listed on the website. So if you're looking for a fall outing, folks, some weekend, you want to take an, a nice hearty walk around the, the capital city, you, this is one way to sort of make it, turn it into a, I don't know, something of a treasure hunt. Is that a fair way to describe it, Chris? I love 
love that way of describing it. Yeah, because it takes folks right through downtown. There's there's a number of different green infrastructure sites right on um, the main road. There's actually a really fun, well, interesting new feature where there's markers for past floods, and you can see the height that they got to in Montpelier, and that's right downtown. So you can get yourself nearby some of the shops and businesses and stop by and, and have a a bite eater, grab something from the, the co-op and explore a little bit of Montpelier. And I like the idea of calling it a treasure hunt. It's, uh, you know, you can in the, the different sites. Now, the, these infrastructure projects that uh, have been installed, I, I would gather they're not completely unique to Montpelier, but was there some organized effort to say, let's do a bunch of these in this one compact little city and uh, sort of set it up from thinking in advance about a possible walking tour or something? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think in this case, what we did is we said, well, we would like to have a tour of Montpelier because, as you alluded to, there's actually tours, similar tours for folks who live in Burlington uh, or want to visit there, uh, St. Albans and Rutland. And so this one was somebody had found out about it, and, and we said, well, oh, well, let's let's think about what the collective suite of green infrastructure practices are in Montpelier and working with the, the Conservation Commission from Montpelier and the Friends of the uh, Winooski River, we identified these sites uh, so the CCV has some in their parking lot and um, the Vermont Natural Resources Council has one. Uh, and then the by the transit center in Montpelier, there's some new features that were installed. So it was kind of a collective group of, of thoughts about, well, what's going on? here that would make for a good tour but collectively all of those things are working together for water quality too so there's kind of a a, a science side and the what's good for the environment that's happening in in Montpelier getting proactive about installing these kinds of things to help water quality and uh, a good byproduct of a of a walking tour and the are the similar things going on in other Places in the basin, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, down to the Rutland area, uh, the the uh, tributaries of the Otter Creek flow through that city, right? Yep, yep. So you correct. So we have these in the other towns. We've actually marketed them as bicycle tours. Some of them are a little bit more distant. Um, the the one in Burlington has uh, many more sites. It's more like thirty sites versus uh, nine or ten. Uh, and so that one is kind of um, a multi multi day adventure. You kind of choose your own adventure there. Uh-huh. But yes, in other places in the the basin, um, the Rutland map, it uh, starts at coal cycling, and then it takes a tour kind of around Rutland to different kinds of practices uh, to parks. There's some sites that are large trees, which are great for using up a lot of rainwater that falls. Uh, trying to think of some of the other sites. Uh, down by the Burlington waterfront, it looks like there's a beautiful rain garden that's been put in sort of near the skate park. Uh, so that's one of the featured areas. Uh, also in Burlington, the green roofs by the University Hospital are one of the featured sites. Uh, so they, the different towns, it's kind of a fun way to explore things that you might not think about looking at uh, on a regular visit to one of these communities. But it's, a, it's kind of a fun way to, to explore and check out those communities in a, in a new way. Aside from the walking and bicycling tours and that sort of thing, it's, it's amazing to me the range of, I was reading up a little bit about the Lake Champlain Sea Grant program, and 
it sounds like there's a lot of community reach out too. Uh, here, here's a, here's an example: the uh, Lake Education and Action Program, or LEAP, that is run by the uh, Poultney Meadowy Natural Resources Conservation District, and the program recruits, hires, educates, and engages college and high school interns to conduct lakeshore and riparian property assessments, educating landowners about the importance of lakeshore and riparian buffers, and to plant native plants and install others, other practices that can help create a more natural shoreline. So it sounds like there's some um, door knocking that goes on here, too. Yeah, so that's a great program uh, that, that the Poultney Meadowy Natural Resources Conservation District runs, and they, it's a great experience for the students that they hire. That they this summer it was a little bit different because of COVID, but uh, under normal circumstances, the students are first educated about well, what why is it important to have uh, plants along shorelines and to not be mowing right up to the edge of the, the water. And so the students get that education early in the season, and then they are able to go out and literally, like you say, knock on doors, talk to people, share with them some educational materials. Um, in parallel, we have another program that we support called Blue uh, that's also doing property site assessments, not necessarily along shoreline properties, but just helping people understand, well, when rain falls at your home, what are the kinds of things that you can do to help minimize it immediately running off down the street into the storm drain? So uh, both programs uh, engage student interns who are teaching uh, community members. So it's a great uh, homeowner and young person opportunity. It's a great opportunity for students, especially our high school students who don't have a lot of science-related jobs in parts of Vermont, uh, where it's an opportunity for younger students to, to get this professional experience uh, as youth before they even head off to college. So we're, we're expanding that. Uh, one of the things that happened this year is we were we had a national site review and we had a excelled in that site review. And what that has done is allowed us to bring in additional base funding to our Sea Grant program. And so one of the things we're doing is expanding the LEAP program to three other watershed groups and natural resource conservation districts around the basin, including in the Montpelier area uh, and up towards the Canadian border. So we're excited to be able to have those opportunities for them to employ college and high school interns in those communities next summer. We're planning now for that to happen uh, next summer. Well, one of the tributaries of Lake Champlain is the Lamoille River, and if you go up the Lamoille River from Lake Champlain, eventually you get to Hardwick, where we have a listener calling in. Karen's on the line. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. I'm wondering Hi, why you why do you never address the glaring issue of billions of gallons of high-acid waste from Abbott and other creameries, and the major issue of the leachate from the dump being trucked to Montpelier. Well, those sound like two separate issues. Let's first go to the uh, uh, the, the creameries. Uh, is there some work being done in the, on, the, on this front, Chris? That's a good question. So not specifically, but in terms of the education that we do with the school groups, one of the things we talk about is what's called non-point source pollution. And so the, the creamery may be what, what we consider the point source of pollutants, and it would be mandated by the Clean Water Act to have a plan. And if it has spills or if it has uh, out, outfall, that would be uh, re- regulated by that Clean Water Act. If 
there's problems. They take problems. this point source of pollution and they spread it all over farmland and it becomes non-point source. And they okay. don't have so, to do anything about it. Okay. I'm not familiar with the specifics of it, but they, if they are spreading it on farmland, they would be operating under a nutrient management plan that would be specifically saying, okay, how much nutrients are on this farmland now? Can it accept more? Uh, and so there should be a plan that they're operating. If there isn't, uh, then that, then there should be somebody who is working with them to get that in order. And I apologize, I don't, I'm not knowing the specifics of it. Let's ask. Let's talk about the uh, the landfill leachate, which I, I do understand is is trucked down to um, Montpelier from the landfill in Coventry. Is that is that what you're talking about, Karen? Uh, I guess Karen's uh, off the line. Uh, Chris, do you know much about that? Is that anything that the uh, Lake Champlain Sea Grant program has looked at? It is, it is not. Our focus is really on educating folks around a big picture issues, and the, these specific ones are, are not ones that I'm familiar with, unfortunately. Yeah, okay. And obviously, you know, there, there are problems that crop up from time to time on environmental issues in, in Vermont, and uh, I appreciate our listeners calling us up and reminding that there are some specific cases out there. I suspect that uh, these are things that the state environmental agency needs to be looking into, maybe already is looking into. And so yep. uh, thank thank Karen for the call. Yep, Let's, absolutely. Yep. Chris, I understand that the Sea Grant program recently received uh, national, recogni- national recognition as a top program of its type from the uh, National Ocean Oceanic Oceanic, rather, and atmospheric administration. That must be uh, quite an honor. Yeah, it, it really is. We are one of 34 Sea Grant programs in the country. I think we have the best story of, of being a Sea Grant program, uh, thanks to uh, Senator Leahy, who helped to bring the funding here uh, in 1999 for Lake Champlain-focused uh, Sea Grant program. And the recognition is really relates back to the strong partnerships we have with the groups around the basin, the watershed groups, the natural resource conservation districts, the the state uh, and local nonprofit groups, and being able to work with them to educate and partner with them to help bring people's knowledge around what a a watershed is and that is the land area draining to a certain water body and trying to take action and encourage people to take action on the ground that can pr- promote healthy ecosystems and good water quality. And so one of the things that's exciting about the distinction of, of having been recognized this year is that it's, again, brought additional funding to the basin so that allows us to extend our work further with local partner groups. And we talked a little bit about the LEAP program and being able to bring that out into uh, different communities in Montpelier and up into Innersburg Falls area and uh, over into the, the Williston area and, and a little bit beyond that as well. Um, we're also doing a few other things uh, that we're pretty excited about. We are creating a scholarship program that's within the University of Vermont to try to retain a diverse population of, of black, indigenous, and other people of color who are representing very small portion of the university students and hoping to encourage them to continue on at UVM and to 
enter into science, technology, engineering, and math fields. Uh, we're also working to partner with uh, Shelburne Farms and others uh, to establish an indigenous education position because of the, the long, in 10,000 plus year history of having indigenous people here in the basin before uh, many of the other uh, cultures had came to this place. And so we're really excited about being able to think about w- where you know people began here in the Lake Champlain Basin and being able to share that through our educational programs. One, one thing that I was wondering about is the, the, the name Sea Grant sort of makes me think maybe uh, most of the other 34 or 33 sites around the country are uh, uh, on the coasts, uh, along they oceans. Are. Is that true? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Most of them are, except with the exception of the there are programs in the Great Lakes states. Uh, so we are we are unique in that we are the one non-Great Lake and non ocean-edged Sea Grant program in the country. Well, the, uh, what, what is it? They, uh, Senator Leahy used to call Champlain the Sixth Great Lake or something like that. That's right. <laughs> so, so we're, when, yeah, when Senator Leahy wrote the reauthorization for Sea Grant back in uh, the late 1999 or two, early 2000s, uh, he put a little carrot in there, and he, I believe Lake Champlain was a Great Lake for a couple weeks. Uh, which was part of getting this, this program to be able to be funded. Um, in the end, we we are now a pretty good lake that we all think is great, which is which is a okay. Uh, and you know, we're grateful to have this opportunity to bring in the the resources and the network um, resources of the Sea Grant program. One thing that reflects on that is this summer there with with COVID. The National Sea Grant Program made available uh, funds to each of the 34 Sea Grant programs to be able to bring dollars into our communities to be able to address uh, COVID response. So some of the things we did with that was to support uh, the, the community uh, sailing center to host uh, low-income, middle-income, and children of essential workers to be able to go to summer camp and to have um, daycare even prior to when summer camp was getting uh, going. Uh, we supported the Lake Champlain Maritime Museum to host virtual summer camps because most camps around uh, you know, the country are, were canceled. Uh, so it gave the parents an opportunity to have their children get some science and watershed education and have, have fun even though they couldn't really go to, to summer camp. Uh, we also supported the um, the Lake Champlain Islands Economic Development Corporation in trying to get a COVID safety message out and uh, made it try to make it fun by having a photo contest where people could be visiting different businesses in their face coverings and uh, showing that that the businesses were open and that it was safe to be able to go there uh, so long as you were following COVID safe guidelines. So we feel like it's the the opportunity to be a cigarette program and to be funded and have this connection with NOAA is really bringing extra resources to the basin that we hope are, are reflecting in many communities across the basin. It's amazing the range of issues that the Sea Grant program gets into. I mean, you're talking about promoting diversity in the sciences. You're talking about real sort of soil in the fingers, environmental stuff, and now you're you're talking about all of these other efforts in community response to say something like the COVID pandemic. It is it is it really is an amazing range of stuff that you're doing there. And it's uh, it's fascinating. Um, 
if folks want to find out more, do you have a website where they should uh, do some research and look up various aspects yeah. of? Yeah, since we're based at the University of Vermont, it's, it's www.uvm.edu and then slash s e a g r a n t, and that should get you to our website, and you can find out about these. The walking tours or the biking tours or the, the kindergarten to 12th grade education. One thing I didn't mention that I'll, I'll mention here that we did this summer that just was released is a Watershed Explorer Challenge. And it's a, a booklet that the students can do at home uh, with their families and their neighborhoods. Uh, and so you can reach us there uh, or at local libraries. We're getting them distributed out to local libraries. For okay, public. I'm afraid we're about out of time. But uh, Chris Stepanuk, uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning. More or online, folks. Check it out there. And uh, thank, thank you so you. much. Let's go to a top of the hour break for some CBS News. We'll be back uh, very shortly. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. Thanks for staying with us into our second hour of our program on this Thursday morning, October 8th, 2020. I believe we're going to be speaking very shortly with a Peter Mayer of uh, CBS News. So we like to uh, get our uh, national perspective uh, just after the mid-show break here. A little bit of uh, getting outside of Vermont's borders. Is Peter on the phone with us? I believe he is. Uh, Good morning, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Dave. Good to be with you. I'm sure you watched the uh, debate last night. Uh, Some folks I hear are calling it a draw. What was your call? Oh, you know, look, this was a classic debate, um, you know, sort of a throwback, especially when you consider, you know, the, the debate that had some people throwing their shoes at TVs last week between Joe <laughs> Biden and, and Donald Trump. Um, Mike Pence and, and Kamala Harris are both skilled debaters. Look, they're both lawyers. She's a veteran prosecutor, as you know, uh, from her experience in California as the DA in San Francisco and the state attorney general. So she was the prosecutor last night. He was the defense attorney, I think. Uh, from the get-go, I think she, knowing that uh, you got to make news in the first half hour of these debates because the listener and, and viewership sort of falls off after that at times, mm-hmm. and she went right after the administration on COVID, saying it was the greatest failure in history. And Mike Pence was able to say, well, we care about people's health, and that's what's foremost in our minds. And the, now this uh, follow-up uh, presidential debate, the second one of the three that uh, were originally scheduled, is in uh, quite a bit of jeopardy next week. The uh, Commission on Presidential Debates, uh, I guess, has called for a virtual debate wherein uh, the uh, former Vice President Joe Biden and pres- incumbent President Trump would be in different locations uh, having a debate back and forth. Uh, President Trump is now saying he doesn't want to do that. Uh, is there any uh, any hope of uh, patching, building a bridge here and getting this thing off the ground after all? You know, I, I don't know whether this is an art of the deal kind of thing with uh, with Trump, whether he's trying to 
negotiate this thing. He sounded rather definitive today on uh, a Fox Business interview by phone from the White House. Uh, it's notable that uh, he did not go on camera with them, uh, but he calls in a lot of times in good health and bad. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, whether, I mean, he just seemed to be rather definitive, and he said, uh, I'm not interested in this because I can be cut off. I think a lot of people would have liked to have seen him cut off last week. But he, uh, you know, he said he's going to go do a rally somewhere. So we'll have to wait and see whether, uh, you know, whether health-wise he's up to it and uh, whether his doctors will allow it if, if they have any say in this or whether they'll find a way to make this happen. But he's given the Biden campaign uh, a clear opening to say he's ducking this, the Trump campaign, uh, his his campaign manager, Mr. Stepien, who also has tested positive for COVID, uh, says that, that they don't want to prop up the Biden campaign. I, I don't quite understand that since all of the polls show Biden with a, a healthy lead. You know, I, I, the, the president made a remark this morning that really kind of struck me. He said something about they're trying to protect Joe Biden. And my first thought was, yeah, they're trying to protect Biden from catching the coronavirus. Isn't he still theoretically contagious as of next week? Well, you know, we don't know because they won't, they won't at least, uh, right up until now, uh, tell the American public when the last time, if there was a last time that the president tested negative. Now the campaign manager said, we'll be able to show three negative tests before next week's, uh, next week's debate which as of now is not going to happen again. Um, so I, I don't know. If there's so many confusing signals coming out of the White House on this, and the press office can't really weigh in because it basically, at least for the moment, is totally decimated because the press secretary and two or three of her top assistants have all tested positive and they're isolated. Wow, yeah. It, it, it is just an amazing set of circumstances here. I want to go back, circle back for just for a moment to the vice presidential debate because you actually brought it back to mind when you were talking about the president's unwillingness to be cut off. It seemed like there was some unwillingness to be cut off uh, last night from the vice president. Uh, uh, what did you think of that? those repeated instances of uh, Pence going over time significantly in his answers? Yeah, he certainly did, and, you know, it it got to be annoying after a while to hear the the moderator, Susan Page of USA Today, saying, thank you, Mr. Vice President, thank you, Mr. Vice President, and he just kept going. I mean, that was obviously their strategy. Um, I had to wonder at the time, and I've only seen anecdotal uh, reports of of what women thought of Pence, uh, you know, bulldozing her and interrupting uh, Kamala Harris twice as many times as she jumped in on his responses. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of speculation that that's not going to go over well. It, it looks like yeah. uh, what some people call mansplaining or whatever, and and I I don't know. I I kind of wish Susan Page, frankly, had been stronger and and said uh, as opposed to thank you, which sounds like she appreciates what he's doing. Uh, she should have said, "Mr. Vice President, you're done, Mr. Vice yeah, President, you're done," over and over again until he yeah. finally uh, and and kind of talked over him so that he couldn't really get his message, whatever message he wanted to deliver in these overtime periods, out. I, I wanted to see a tougher moderator there. Uh, yeah, I but, think a lot of people feel the same way. I have full disclosure, Susan's a longtime friend of mine. We covered the White House together for many years going back, yep. I don't want to tell you, three decades or so. 
but yeah, I, you know, I don't know what constraints, if any, were put on her by the debate commission who uh, runs the thing. I, I wish there had been a, a bell or a light or something yeah. that would have told people that, you know, or, or maybe a clock on the screen telling people that uh, his time was running out. Uh, do, do they get a signal when they're when they are running out of time? It's a two minute answer, and do they see any kind of indication that we're now at you know a minute fifty or whatever? You know, I don't know. In past debates, they have used devices like that, Dave. And, and again, I wish they would have last night. It uh, again, it, it just it, it sounded like it was on what we in radio would call a loop with her saying, "Thank you, Vice President. Thank you, yeah. Vice President." And she, you know, she had to, to put a, you know, the stop to Kamala Harris a few times too, but not nearly as many and, and noticeable. Um, noteworthy, I, when I was on the air with CBS last night, uh, one of the other contributors is a great guy, Professor Leonard Steinhorn of American University. Oh yeah, he's been a guest here on the show. Yep, he's yeah, a great guy. Well, well Lenny, uh, you know, was, uh, in touch with, uh, his students, and, and these are not just, you know, young kids. A lot of them are in advanced classes. And he said on the air that a number of his women students told him that they were just repulsed by the way that Pence was conducting himself. Again, anecdotal, Dave. It's not like a scientific, uh, you know, uh, Pew Research study. Yeah. But for yeah. people to immediately say that, I think, is very telling. Interesting. Especially well. when you're, especially when uh, you're trying to uh, attract suburban women voters. We'll see how that works out. Uh, well, Peter Mayer of CBS News, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's great talking with you. And you too, sir. Appreciate it. Alrighty. Uh, we have a couple minutes left, I think, between now and when we need to take our quarter hour break and bring in our next guest. So we'll open the phone lines for a couple minutes here. If I missed a call earlier. I think it was from Don from Elmore. If Don wants to give us a ring back, this is a good chance for you. I don't know if you're, you're still uh, hot, hot to trot on whatever issue you wanted to address. I suggest it might have stemmed from uh, the first half hour conversation we had this morning with uh, Steve Pappas of the uh, Rutland Herald and Times Argus and uh We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see if that's the case, but, uh, if, uh, if in fact, uh, Don is still out there and want, wanting to, uh, check in with us, uh, anybody else also welcome. 244-1777 is a local number in Waterbury, uh, 1-877-291-8255 or 291-TALK. And, uh, we just have a, a couple of minutes to go here, I do believe, uh, before we, uh, bring in our our next guest and uh, have a conversation about the. Uh, the we're going to be. Let's see here. <laughs> I have uh, lost track a little bit, unfortunately, but I think I can bring this up now. Um, we're going to be. Oh yeah, here we go. We're going to be talking with Lori Smith of the Vermont Futures Project. Oh yeah, and we're going to have. Um, uh, I was having a little brain cramp there, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, we're we're going to be talking with uh, three three folks who have uh, settled in Vermont during this COVID-19 crisis and just get their own stories about how it is, uh, what they've decided to do, and uh, are they going to stay here long term, et cetera. I think we'll have an interesting conversation about how we've heard so many uh, stories anecdotally uh, about uh Folks wanting to move to Vermont because of our low COVID numbers. Uh, they're coming in from frequently from uh, metropolitan areas with much higher COVID numbers. And uh, you can't really blame people for wanting to minimize uh, the amount of risk that they're taking on in their own lives. And uh, let's hope that Vermont's uh, numbers 
remain as low as it's really been pretty remarkable. We haven't had a death here in Vermont from COVID in more than two months. And, uh, and Governor Scott frequently attributes that to essentially the, uh, good and healthy conduct by Vermonters, people wearing masks and maintaining their social distancing and staying out of crowded places and uh, all that good stuff. Uh, it's kind of a drag. I, I call it good stuff, but I understand that, that it's not necessarily what you want to do all the time. Sometimes it's uh, it's fun to think about going out to a crowded bar or party or just getting out in public and rubbing elbows and hugging friends and all that stuff we used to do, but uh, not so much... Uh, not so, not happening so much these days. It's kind of a kind of a drag, but it's what we have to do. Vermont's been uh, quite good at it. Some people joke it's uh, we're a bunch of Yankees and we're good at social distancing, but uh, it's it's also uh, it's also a testament, I think, to people's sort of communitarian spirit. We want to try to keep each other healthy if we can, and so we're everybody's uh, everybody's pitching in and doing what's right from that uh, public health perspective. We're going to be uh, speaking with Laurie Smith of the Vermont Futures Project, and I think we're going to have a succession of uh, three other guests over the next uh, 45 minutes or so in, uh, to talk to us about re- relocating to Vermont, settling in Vermont, uh, and uh, appreciating Vermont and its low COVID numbers. Uh, is Laurie Smith on the line with us? I am. Good morning, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, tell me a little bit, a bit about uh, the, the Vermont Futures Project, first of all, and then uh, maybe we'll, uh, well, we will get into this uh, research project you've been doing. Yeah, well, thanks uh, very much, Dave, for having uh, me on the, on the show. And the Vermont Futures Project um, is, uh, is an initiative to um, secure Vermont's economic future, but we use that, um, we use the work of research and data and um, education, et cetera, to um, help secure Vermont's future. And again, we're kind of the, we're, we're the, we um, are part of the Chamber Foundation. And what we do is we get to look over the horizon and be hopeful um, about Vermont's future and Vermont's future economy. So that's the work that we do. And I'm sorry, which which foundation are you part of? The Chamber Foundation. Oh, okay. Vermont Chamber Foundation. I see. And and uh, what are some of the other projects, uh, before we get into this one, what are, what, give us some examples of other research, et cetera, take, undertaken by the Vermont Futures Project. Yes. Well, um, first of all, our, our, we're anchor, anchored in data. So we do use 100 um, uh, data sets to really assess Vermont's economy, which is worth looking at our website um, from uh, vtfuturesproject.org. Um, recently, we've um, just added, with the help and um, uh, guidance with UVM, we've added some uh, racial diversity and equity data sets, um, which are very important to Vermont's future economy. Um, we've done research around um, the. We've done research around internships. We've done research around Vermont's taxing dilemma, looking at taxation in the long-term economy, which is very recent. Um, we spoke to the tax commission, and we've just done a lot of different um, research that really is. Um, uh, based on the moment in time that we we need to think about looking out on the economy, whether it's workforce or it's infrastructure or demographics, we we tend to do research that really brings home the story of what's happening in Vermont's economy today, but how can we look to its future um, tomorrow? So let's zero in a little bit on this phenomenon we're going to talk about today, which is uh, folks coming to Vermont somewhat as, um, for lack of a better term, I guess maybe, COVID refugees, is that an okay term to use, you think? Yeah, 
I don't know if the folks that are here want to be called refugees, but I think it's a planned word and, um, between climate refugees and COVID refugees. But um, <laughs> we love to call them new Vermonters um, and Vermonters, period, um, that have come to love, come here for the love of our state. That's why we're all here, and we can't forget about the people that are also here um, uh, loving Vermont, and they're joining, joining with us. And so many of these folks, uh, Richard Watts, um, a researcher at UVM, um, we actually were having a casual conversation about, hey, do you have something in your house for five months? Well, I have something in my house for five months, and there's got to be more out there. And uh, we decided to find a way to reach them. And that's what we did in this study is those folks that have been here for three to six months, we wanted to reach out and find out what would it take for you to become Vermonters. Um, and, and that's what you'll hear from a few of them today. And obviously, uh, this trend has to help somewhat with some concerns that have been voiced by people, including the governor and business leaders, over the past really uh, several years now. And that is, uh, Vermont's had a actual or had had an actual population decline over the last decade or so, uh, and has had trouble keeping young people in the state and recruiting newcomers to come here, has taken some steps prior to the COVID crisis, in, including that grant program that was in play last year and the year before. Um, is, the, is the COVID crisis and people's reactions to it going to help actually get more people to come to Vermont? Um, it's a great question and one that will um, take some time to determine based on the data. But what the anecdotal evidence on the activity, certainly from real estate sales, et cetera, is pointing to the fact that people are, are um, deciding to uh, become residents here. And, and I'll go back to your question about the struggle. Yeah, Vermont's um, economy was, uh, has struggled a little um Certainly in the last recession, that seems like eons ago for, for us, but we, um, we struggled for decades to grow our population and, and everyone's really kind of asking, is this a, is COVID creating that Vermont 1970s moment where the 1970s um, and 80s, we were seeing somewhat of you know, 10,000 new Vermonters every decade or, or more than that, somewhere in that 40,000. We aren't seeing that kind of growth. Um, we've been quite stagnant stagnant in our population. And that, that is really reflected in our workforce needs. Um, so when the governor and others talked about needing people, we were really talking a lot in the Vermont Futures Project was about the need for people and workers um, to fill our, our jobs and our um, expand our economy. So, yes, I think there's this question of is this, this our, uh, can COVID be a, a, pos- a positive um, effect on Vermont and our population decline, for sure, for sure. So do we have I, with I us... I want to go back, Dave. One, yes. one question, though, you mentioned about young people. I do want to say in the survey, because um, I would like to talk quickly about that survey, is that we, um, in the survey, a, th- a third to um, a third folks say they're likely or more than likely to stay of the 200 um, to 40 folks that we, we survey. But the interesting point is that um, over 60% of those that... Um, Survey said they um, were, that took the survey were over 35, and so I think we went into this thinking that we'd capture the folks that were living in, you know, Richard and my home um, were, were um, in their 20s. But it's interesting; um, it's 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 a, it's a broad brush of who is here and who plans to stay. And I just wanted to point that out. Do we have with us uh, Justin Will from Versher, Vermont? I believe he was one of the folks you were saying uh, could join us this morning. Yeah, I'm here, Dave. Hey, Justin. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Uh, excellent here. I see a note I got from Lori. I think uh, 
saying that you are a coffee entrepreneur and a Navy veteran who relocated to Versher in March with your wife, Elise, and your newborn baby, Isabel, and that uh, your interests are far-ranging, often international, but this year you've been focusing on rural economic development right here in Vermont. And i got to say, uh, in Versher, you picked a beautiful part of the state to uh, focus on rural economic development, so congratulations uh, have you, have, do you feel like you've pretty much settled there? Are you going to be there, be in Berkshire for a while? Uh, I think we're really enjoying it. We had purchased a house in 2019 sort of as more of a vacation rental or something that we could use as an investment. But, you know, as COVID, you know, came upon us, we were uh, overseas and decided it was probably time to, to come back to the house, to the homestead, if you will. And uh, we really enjoyed it. Um, to be in a place like Berkshire during a pandemic is is ideally situated and we've really, really enjoyed it. And we're trying to, to find out how to make it work. We were uh, fortunate enough to get fiber internet installed. There's a community fiber here. Um, and that really set us up to be able to work remotely. Um, me with coffee and my wife is the consultant. So that'll make things a lot easier for sure. And where in the uh, coffee field are you? Are, are you uh, a, a grower or a wholesaler or a coffee shop owner? Or what are you doing with the coffee? I think my, my company, uh, Inspired Coffee Merchants, is probably most readily described as an importer. I'll import raw coffee and then sell it to coffee roasters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also do a lot of other side projects, and I'm, I'm trying to, to use some of the, the space we have at our, um, our house in Berkshire now in the garage, in fact, which is where I'm working out of now, um, to try and experiment with some other stuff. So I'd like to, that's why I try and describe myself more as a coffee entrepreneur. So I'll come up with different ways to roast or um, other different innovations that I could you know, experiment with in my garage. And you never know which one will uh, work out and take off. So uh, I wish you luck with with uh, all of these things and uh, hope that uh, something really happens for you there. Now, I wonder, um, and you're, you said your wife, Elise, is a consultant? Yeah, she does uh, conflict management and mediation consulting. So before this, she was traveling for that work, but now in COVID, it's, it's become, you know, a virtual profession now it I, I think anyone would probably agree that um interpersonal issues like conflict management are best done in person um but for the time being you know we're we're doing it all on zoom wow and and uh your newborn baby isabel first child i gather yes first child excellent and <laughs> As soon she'll be, uh, you'll be thinking about preschool and uh, public school or or some kind of school for her. Are, are, what do you make of all that? Is are you fairly well set up as you look ahead there in uh, in the Versher area? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'll be honest and say we haven't looked into schooling much yet. I mean, Izzy is we call her Izzy for short. Um, Izzy is. Uh, going on seven weeks old right now. And, oh, wow. Uh, we're, we're looking at... One <laughs> <laughs> thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. you, got, you got a few diapers to change before you have to worry about school, so... A few million Yeah. That's, uh, well, congratulations on that. That's a that's a very cool time of life. Uh, been there a couple times myself, and uh, wow. Well, you're, big, big time for learning and fun and uh, newborn child. It's uh, it's great, uh, and and your uh, it says here your interests are far ranging and often international. Uh, talk to us about that a little bit. Sure. So in the uh, in the navy, I was doing foreign affairs work, 
Um, and that sort of led me to just, I just finished a uh, master's in international affairs at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping to get more into foreign policy um, type work. And uh, But living in Vermont and then um, I was sort of interested in rural economic development going into it. Um, so I wrote my master's thesis on um, sort of combining my interests of using uh, coffee shops as small businesses that can you know, boost local local economies and small towns um, in places like Vermont. So I'm kind of hoping to, to broaden that. It's amazing how you can pile up some practical experience and then go back into a more academic or theoretical environment and say, wow, I, I've done this. So I, I have a good perspective on how it gets done. Is that a, a, a fair analysis there? Exactly. Yeah. I feel like one of the most obvious things to me in school was that there's always a huge gap between theory and practice. So I think my experience as a as a small business entrepreneur is that I'm, I am making things happen too. So I'm trying to balance the two worlds. What, what, what uh, foreign countries are do, do you typically source your coffee from? Most of my uh, coffee comes from either Nicaragua or Ethiopia, um, but I've been to several countries and I'm always looking for for new sources, but it sort of depends on what what's popular at the moment, right? So um, I think Ethiopian coffees are, are known to be pretty unique, um, and Ethiopia is a notoriously hard country to uh, deal with in terms of regulation, so there's not a ton of it available. Um, and then I also focus on uh, coffee-related products, like the, the cherry, like the actual fruit from the coffee tree uh, is a product that isn't a, a big seller yet, but it's a, a way for farmers to sell more of the tree, right? You know, use all parts of the, the chicken sort of thing. Um, so instead of throwing out some of this leftover fruit, they're able to dry it out, and then you can ship it to places like the United States and make teas with it. Um, it's full of antioxidants, things like that. So I'm also trying to help the farmers be more sustainable on their end. That's, that is that uh, is sounds like a really worthwhile project. I uh, wish you the best of luck with that, uh, and, and uh, best of luck to uh, you, Elise, and Izzy in getting settled in Versher for as long as you're around. That'll be uh, a little of Vermont adventure as well. So, uh, Justin, well, thank you very much. Uh, Laurie Smith, I want to uh, stick with you and uh, hope you can continue with us after the break we're going to for some uh, bottom of the hour CBS News. We'll be back shortly, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We're talking to Lori Smith, Executive Director of the Vermont Futures Project. Uh, and that's a data-driven initiative working to secure Vermont's economic future and provide opportunity for all Vermonters. And um, they've been studying this phenomenon of people coming to Vermont in part to uh, escape uh, the higher numbers of COVID-19 incidents in more heavily populated areas. I think we're going to be talking 
in the uh, well actually Laurie let me first ask you if I could uh, are you finding that most of the people you have interviewed are planning on staying in Vermont long term or is it more of a shorter months or a couple years kind of thing or what are you hearing from folks well um, when we ask the question will they stay will you stay in Vermont uh, once the world returns to something more normal <laughs> Um, 35% um, stated they were likely or very likely to stay in Vermont. And we thought that was pretty a profound um, uh, reply. So 30% um, have said they're unsure, um, so they're probably contemplating, and then 36% um, said they were in like, um, more likely to return um, to where they were. So there, we have some, um, obviously, many, many folks uh, contemplating staying here in Vermont or have already done so. And we have a, a person who is, I think, spending more time in Vermont. It might have been splitting time uh, a little bit more previously. Jack Sherry and his wife uh, split their time between Warren, uh, and uh, we just heard the uh, commercial for the Warren store a couple minutes ago. And, by the way, I always thank them for sponsoring the, the Dave Graham Show podcast on the WDEV website uh, but uh, Jack Sherry and his wife Jean split their time between New Orleans and Westwood, Mass, which Westwood, Mass, which is a Boston suburb. He's an executive with a Boston-based financial software company. Good morning, Jack. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Dave and Lori. And the um, you've been active in both communities. Spend your time with a mem- as a member of nonprofit organizations. In Warren, you've served on the Mad River Valley Chamber of Commerce as an officer and a member of the board. And it's it's always interesting to me how folks who are in Vermont typically just part of the year still get themselves really involved in the local communities here, or many people do that. Do you find that uh, some of the your some of your colleagues on the uh, chamber board there are also uh, uh, spend a lot of their year elsewhere? Well, actually, most of the chamber board is is our folks that are local business owners. I'm probably a bit unusual in that I'm really just a resident, but I love the valley and I love all that uh, it's about. It's a beautiful place. It's a it's a wonderful place to uh, spend time. And our family, we have a, a large family that uh, tries to get up here as much as they can. So, um, just a, it's a it's a wonderful place to be. And frankly, in this period where it's been um, frankly, kind of crazy. It's been uh, my wife and I have been here since since March, and uh, uh, have spent we spent a lot of time of the year, much of the time here. But uh, our plan is to spend more time here. It sounds like it's becoming a, a bigger part of your year to live in Warren than down in Massachusetts. Uh, is that a a, a fair a fair guess on my part? Yeah, we'll probably split our time. We really enjoyed it. We've tend to spend the summer here uh, through the winter. Uh, we uh, tend to rent out our house for skiers, and we're, we're doing that again this year. We're finding people, uh, interestingly, want to rent more for weeks at a time as opposed to over a weekend. Um, so I think people want to want to be close to all that the, the Valley offers, but uh, uh, are looking to get away. And I, frankly, I'm my, uh, as I jokingly refer to my, uh, as I speak to clients and and uh, friends in my industry, uh, I, I'm working from my world headquarters overlooking the Mad River Valley at my kitchen table in Warren, Vermont. <laughs> yeah. Why not? You know, if you, How's the uh, cell service and broadband there? It's excellent. Uh, Waitsfield Cable and 
telecom uh, does a great job. They keep uh, expanding services, so uh, really no issue uh, there. And uh, um, I can do all my Zoom calls and uh, Microsoft Team calls and all the rest of it, uh, just like all the rest. So uh, what I'm finding is whoever I speak with, I work with some largest banks and brokerage firms in in, in the country, and uh, uh, the executives I deal with uh, are all working from their homes. So we're all spread out and seeing much more. In fact, here in Warren Village, there have been, uh, I don't know, it's ad- it keeps adding this. I think there's been uh, now up to nine different for sale here on Main Street, all of which have been purchased and largely by folks that are moving from elsewhere. And they're setting up camp here and, uh, and doing their jobs from uh, Main Street more in Vermont. Wow. Do you, do you think, uh, what percentage of those folks that you just were thinking about there are going to become permanent sort of year-round residents, and what percentage are going to be, you know, short-timers or just vacationers? Yeah, it's, it, it, for frankly, a lot of them, they're, they're trying to figure that out, they're, but they, they want to be here while things are sorting itself out. My, my sense is uh, I'm not sure I'm ever going to go back to my office in Boston. I was just talking to one of, one of my partners about that this week. Um, we're in the financial district in downtown Boston, uh, and really I see no need to go back there, and we're kind of looking at the fact that uh, having the office space we have is, Frankly, uh, an expense we we probably don't need, and we'll be we'll be cutting back over time. And in the meantime, the folks that I see here on on Main Street, um, they 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 love all that the uh, the valley has to offer. They they like the, that. It's frankly been safe up here. It's been really I think well managed uh, across the state. And so uh, since it doesn't really matter where you do your Zoom calls, and that seems to be how we communicate these days, why not do it from a beautiful place like the Mad River Valley? Boy, your story multiplied by, I don't know, a couple million or whatever is why I'm reading that the uh, urban uh, commercial office space market is crashing. Yeah, I, I actually, that's a quote. I just said that yesterday to a colleague, said it to a few folks, that the, that's about the last business I'd want to be in right now is commercial real estate. Um, yeah. As, as I mentioned, I, I just see there's no need to sit in an office when I can, when, can I, and I literally overlooked the matter of the Mad River, while I'm doing my Zoom calls and watching the birds and the trees outside. I mean, uh, who wouldn't want to be doing it from there as opposed to some, some place in downtown uh, Boston taking a train to get downtown, which I would not want to do and won't do. Um, so why not why not do it from a place where I've got a two-minute commute from my bedroom when I wake up in the morning to sitting at my kitchen table? <laughs> yeah, I I get you. I, I, I understand. And, you know, it's... I, I'm, I'm reading also about the environmental benefits of a lot fewer people getting into those traffic jams on the Mass Pike and 993, uh, cleaner air, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, I have to remember, it's kind of funny, I have to remember to leave my house because I tend to get caught up on these, frankly, incessant Zoom calls. Um, and I literally just need to get out and just drive my car. To, I did actually the other day where... Uh, just drove around the valley just to look at the look at the you know, the foliage and just to get out of the house. But uh, that, that if there's that one downside is I've got to be careful not to just get stuck uh, doing doing my job uh, via via Zoom. You can't become a hermit. I mean that's, that's and it and it's so easy to do in this in this COVID crisis. You know you don't you you probably don't go down to the Warren store and just sit there and have a cup of coffee. Uh, and, and while people used to do that kind of stuff, you know, get out every day and go down to the, 
either the local pub or the coffee shop or the, you know their favorite diner or something and 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 that, a lot of that stuff has waned in, in a big way in the COVID Actually, crisis. Dave, I, I, one of the things I've done purposely is I, uh, every Tuesday I meet up with a, a group of of guys that I know uh, and we meet for a cup of coffee at the Warren store on the on the deck. Excellent. Um, and actually, there are stories as you mentioned in your commercial just as we got on. Uh, they're they're doing a lot to base, actually make it more attractive. So it, that is something I have to remember to do. I, it's, and that's why I actually have it as a scheduled event. Is I make sure I get get it, you know, get away from my kitchen and at least uh, uh, converse with others. We all got to have our masks on and all the rest, but. Uh, um, it's good to you got to connect. You got to you got to talk to people. Yeah, it, the opposite is not healthy. I I have a friend who actually I was just chatting with him on the phone. He, he lives down in Massachusetts, in fact, and he was saying, "God, I woke up the other morning and it occurred to me I I haven't been out of the house in three days." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, true. <laughs> you got to be careful of that of that yeah. stuff. Uh, yeah. So, it, in your own case, I mean, let, let's assume the COVID remains. Around for a while. I don't know whether the va- there's going to be some magic bullet vaccine or a lot of resistance getting vaccinated. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, can you imagine yourself uh, just continuing in Warren for pretty much indefinitely, or do you think you're going to uh, eventually feel a need to get back down to the big city? Yeah, I, I, we we're going to split our time. Uh, we've really been here since March, and probably. Uh, uh, First or second week in November, we're going to head back down for the holidays. We don't know what those will look like, but we have uh, we have uh, four adult children, uh, many of whom live in the Boston area, and so we're going to get back down that way. And we've got a couple of grandkids that are that way, and so uh, you know we'll we'll be doing that. That's really the the draw at this point, and uh, and we'll be back and forth. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, we're we're also going to rent out our our home as we've done for many years for for skiers. So that that in that time frame, we already have a lot of folks that are are, are renting our place because it lends itself well to families getting together. And frankly, what we're finding is many of the folks want to rent for a week or two so that they can work from here while they're while they're doing their skiing, what have you. Oh but sure, we'll, we'll, we'll probably spend more than half the year here. Uh, probably back, starting back in March, we'll be here more than not here so um, we'll see how it plays out but it, I, I think we're in this for a while i don't think the even with the vaccine that's that's not gonna that's not gonna be a magic one that all, all of a sudden everything goes back to, i think it's gonna take a while all right well uh, jack sherry uh, i really appreciate you spending some time with us this morning to fill us in on your own personal case and it sounds like from what laurie smith from the vermont futures project is telling us it's not unique but it's uh good to get the real the real story from uh, somebody going through it so thank you so much i wish you the best of luck appreciate it Dave. thanks so much appreciate it okay uh laurie um i just got a note actually from a listener michelle clark in plainfield and she um t- calls it uh, two examples for today's show my daughter and son-in-law and their two young children were thinking of buying a summer house here for some years. They were living in Cambridge, Mass. Instead, they bought a full-time house and moved here in May. The boys are in school. They are planning to stay full-time at least for a year, and then who knows? Uh, they always work from home. My niece and her husband and little daughter moved up because of COVID. Uh, she gave birth to her second child up here. Uh, they were here five months. They liked it so much. They're now thinking of moving here full time in one year when they wrap up things in New York City. Uh, she says, because my niece above came up here. 
her two sisters moved up, and now they're thinking they may move back here in a year. That's Michelle uh, Clark from Plainfield. And, you know, it's interesting how different family members kind of get the idea from a sibling or someone, and, gee, I'm going to move up there, too. And that's that, it, it, Throughout history, that's uh, oftentimes the way immigration has worked, right? Right, yeah, I think that story is a family affair. I love that story. Thanks for sharing. Um, I would say that, like we, probably most states, but Vermont especially, there's usually a connection um, that brings people back to Vermont. Um, but as you heard from Justin, I mean, Justin and Elise, uh, they wanted to call Vermont home, and they had been what they called themselves nomads in the story that they tell. So I think there's a combination of how people get here. But what um, I think is um, most important for us to remember is that we, uh, Vermonters um, that are deciding to stay here, is that we welcome them. Um, we welcome all um, folks um to, to Vermont in this beautiful landscape, but we also have to be clear that we have to create that infrastructure and investment so they can stay um, and, and create those opportunities for them to think about Vermont long-term, and that's really what the Vermont Futures Project is, is about, is, is really helping with that economic security um, long-term looking at research so that, that they, they have those opportunities. So we're excited, at, um, we're excited about those kinds of stories, so thanks for sharing that one. We're uh, going to be talking in this last little segment of the Dave Graham Show here of with the um, Kira Bratton-Lewis of Brattleboro. She's a screenwriter, originally from Brattleboro, and she's back there now. I believe she's on the line with us. Uh, good morning, Kira. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. And So you are uh, from Brattleboro, and uh, did you move away for a while? Yeah, so I'm back because of um, the global pandemic. I was living in Los Angeles um, for screenwriting. Wow, and, and are you able to do your screenwriting work as effectively and as well from Brattleboro as you were in Los Angeles? Um, well, every once in a while, the scheduling, I kind of forget about time zones. Um, oh, but yeah. But otherwise, it's been, <laughs> um, otherwise, it's been all right. It hasn't, you know, um, yeah, it's been manageable. Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, I had a guest on from, uh, I think from the San Francisco area. And, uh, we were first going to have her on in our first hour of the show between 8 and 9 a.m. She said, please, can I go with the second hour? Because <laughs> 8 a.m. is, uh, 5 where I am. So we let her sleep in a little bit. We tr- try to be kind. So, uh, <laughs> So what sort of uh, screenwriting do you do for film, uh, for, for cinema, or for television, or what, what? tell us about that. Yeah, um, well, my last project was a film that was the Cannes Film Festival um, in 2019 as a short film, and so I'm currently studying to expand into a feature and, and television. Wow, and, and uh, do you have any uh, sort of pilots in the works, or a Pardon my ignorance about the industry, by the way. I don't really know how it all works, but tell us how uh, what what marks progress for you and where you are. Um, well, yeah. So right now, I have uh, four projects that are in the works, and yes, pilots are kind of like the the direction that I'm interested in going in because um, it's great to be able to tell a story over you know nine, ten, fifteen hours on TV as opposed to being limited to two. So yeah. I'm writing a number of pilots, um, and I'm really interested. You know, a lot of my inspiration comes from growing up in Vermont and growing up in New England. So a lot of them take place in, like, rural areas and have to do with kind of, like, lovingly dysfunctional families and strange townspeople um, and all the things that kind of, like, 
make it great to be in Brattleboro during this time. Yeah, it's uh, New England has, does have its own uh, special flavors, and and I think that uh, there's a lot of interest. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you there's a terrific novel, uh, John Gardner, October Light. Uh, I think it's set in like Bennington County somewhere, and uh, I don't know if you ever read that, but that could be a good source of inspiration if not. So, yeah, that's great. I haven't read it. Um, and. And your uh, your work in Brattleboro, I mean, it's a, a, a lot a lot different from Los Angeles, obviously. Uh, although having grown up there, reflect for us a little bit on just that change of sort of going to the big city and then coming back. Yeah, I think you know the biggest shift has been that you know everyone knows who you are uh, in a town like Brattleboro, so that sense of like anonymity is um, gone because you can you know you can identify someone with their mask on from a half mile away basically um <laughs> and i think it's just kind of it brought me back like a sense of community like a sense of kind of not being in this alone um so that's been really great it's also like a lot like the weather here is just so much better um than being in hot uh smoky California right now, um, which, you know, reminds me of how important seasons are and and making sure that we have seasons in the future. All right. We might have to check back in with you in, like, February and see if you still feel... Yeah. Of course, you, you know what it's like. So uh, I'm sure you're you're ready for winter. You're probably got get the old uh, get the old long johns out of uh, mothballs or whatever, right? Yeah, no, I'm wearing long johns now. You know, I I have been preparing for like fun things to do in the winter. I bought some snowshoes for the first time. Excellent. Um, my my granddad, you know, had the old school like tennis racket looking ones, and I always thought they were very strange and never had any interest. But I'm I'm at the age now where I'm like, okay, like this could be a, a sport that I could engage in and have fun. Mm-hmm. And you have extended family around the Brattleboro area? Yeah. So my grandparents moved here in the early 50s to Springfield, Vermont. And so my dad grew up there. He now lives in Chester. And my cousins and uncles live in Windsor County and in, and then migrated up to Essex, um, where my sister also lives. So, yeah, most of our family. And I was the only one in our nuclear family to live outside of Vermont. Um so they must be glad to have you back. I think so, yeah. I think it's been a lot easier to feel, you know, comforted by the fact that our entire family is here right now. So do you think that 10 years from now you'll still be in Vermont? Um, I think that really depends on, like, how well we can prepare our industry for, um, you know, our economy to, to shift outside of tourism, um, you know, seasonal tourism, is you know it's tough it's a tough industry um and i'm looking forward to the opportunities to like really utilize our like um kind of like tradesmen and and women in our in our state and put and like retrain them to be able to do film and tv projects because essentially it's just a microcosm of a normal economy or economy or community you need accountants you need carpenters, you need greensmen and landscapers, you need caterers, you need all the same people you need in a normal community and that we have in abundance here. And I would love to see, uh, like, you know, a statewide retraining program so that we can really capitalize on the, the bustling film and television industry. 
Yeah, you need key grips or something. I I, I always look at the credits yeah. at the end of movies and TV shows, and I'm like, wow, it takes a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Yeah. Of course, I, and then I do. I do ten hours of uh, radio a week, and and it's just me, <laughs> and I get jealous sometimes <laughs> for all that help. Yeah, but. it's a great community. It's a really great community, and they're you know really great union jobs. And like you mentioned, key grips. You know, like those people that are you know trained in elect in like electrical and making sure that like sets are safe for everybody. Um, and that, and, and you know, we can do that here if we if we had a training program. Do you think that there is a potential for a sort of a Vermont-based uh, film industry? I do. I think um, what we're really good at is like making, like using our resources to our best advantage. And there's a lot of space here. Um, and I think a film or television industry here could really revitalize some of our towns with like a, an influx of like money and resources for a short period of time and then know that those you know the people the footprint won't last forever that they'll go back to their to their original location in major cities and that we'll get the benefit of you know like interesting projects and um, work for people but that it's not going to reshape the culture of our of our communities maybe the, uh, the culture of our communities can reshape some of the uh, industry a little bit yeah exactly I think we have we, in terms of like green inefficiency um, green efficiency could be something that we could really like help in our in the industry for sure alright well Kira Bratton Lewis uh, you're uh, bringing some fascinating uh, facts and ideas to the Dave Graham show here on WDEV I really appreciate uh, you giving us a little time this morning thanks for having me Best of luck. And uh, Laurie Smith, just a couple minutes to go here. Um, How do you tie these three uh, stories together for us? What's the central message here? Well, um, well, first of all, what I want to say, you know, Karen, Justin, and Jack, all three bring an innovative spirit um, and an entrepreneurial spirit to Vermont. And I think that's really our DNA. And I I love, I too didn't know uh, much about the movie industry and Kira. Uh, shared with me the ideas she had in Justin as well. And so I think the, what, what we're seeing is um, uh, d- diversity at play, diversity of thought, race, gender, age in Vermont, and it's just um, it's worth celebrating. So that's um, how we see Vermont's future. Um, we need more of it, and we applaud oh. it. Well, all right, uh, Laurie Smith of the Vermont Futures Project. I really appreciate you joining us this morning and helping us line up these three guests. Uh, fascinating conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. Really appreciate it. And that is about it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV FM and AM. Uh, stay tuned for Bill Sayer, Common Sense Radio. Tomorrow we go from the Dave Graham Show to uh, one of Governor Phil Scott's regular COVID-19 news conferences. So there we go. We'll be back again with another edition of our show tomorrow morning about 9 o'clock. Talk to you all then.